Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. Be the Earth believes in a world that nurtures all beings. It works by boosting individuals and organisations driving a viable future, connecting funding and investing in regenerative economies that sustain life on Earth. Join this movement by subscribing to their newsletter. Visit beTheEarth.foundation. Hi, it's Kirsty here. This is a conversation that I had with Frances Haugen. Why does that name ring a bell, you ask? Frances is also known as a Facebook whistleblower, the woman who decided to leak internal documents that demonstrated a lack of empathy and care from Facebook executives about the impact that its products were having, particularly on young women and girls. Facebook has since changed its name to Meta, but its suite of products is the same. There's Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp and they're visited by billions of people globally every day. Frances is a big thinker. She wants to be part of the story that changes the narrative around social media to be a more inclusive, positive, digital experience for everyone. We had this conversation over video conference, Frances beachside in Puerto Rico, where she lives, and me at home in the Snowy Mountains. I hope you enjoy it. Francis, thank you so much for your time on the Dumbo Feather podcast. Um, welcome to Australia. Um, you you were raised by parents with a strong moral compass from the sounds of things, and I'd love you to tell us a bit about your childhood and the civic engagement that you experienced as a young person, how that hmm. influenced you. Uh, so I grew up in the Midwest in the United States, in Iowa, in a university town by two parents who are both professors. And Iowa is a very interesting place from the perspective of every four years, this giant public festival rolls through town known as the Iowa caucuses. And every candidate will descend on the state to make their pitch. And there's a joke that there are lots of Iowans who just won't vote for you unless you shook their hand, that kind of thing. Kind of retail politics, as it's described, that has largely evaporated from the world in the last hundred years, but still alive in Iowa. And what's interesting about it is because so much effort and energy and money is invested in this political cycle, there is a real sense of the idea that the process of democracy matters, right? Like the process of having conversations matters. Democracy is not a thing that we get for free. We get it because we work at it continuously over generations. And so I think it instills like a different sense of responsibility for the care and feeding of our civic environment, because you see people spend their entire lifetimes investing in this process. And so it's very easy to want to like protect and nourish such a thing. Fantastic. Thank you. With more than a year passing between your revelations to the public about Facebook's 
bad behavior. I'm wondering if you can just walk us through the events that led up to your decision to blow the whistle on the company. Mm. What led you to do that? They say with different kinds of processes, you know, they happen slowly and then very fast. Things like bankruptcy, people get a little bit more and more threadbare and then they declare bankruptcy. It's interesting. I knew things were substantially worse than I had feared within a couple of weeks of joining Facebook. So it's not like I came into Facebook and was like, oh, Facebook is this wonderful, altruistic company. I had my qualms going in, but what actually was there was substantially worse than what I had been afraid of. I thought I was going to work on misinformation in the U.S. 2020 election. And what I actually got put on was working on misinformation everywhere else in the world. So like everywhere where there wasn't third-party fact-checking, that's where my scope was. I consider myself like a pretty well-read person, particularly for a technologist, but it had never even dawned upon me the idea that the Facebook I got to use as an English speaker was meaningfully different than the Facebook used by billions of people around the world. Or the idea that even for the different English versions of Facebook, Facebook in the United States was substantially safer than, say, Facebook in Australia. And so just coming in and having that context and being like, oh, interesting, this is much more complicated than I thought it was going to be. And then as I watched it play out, I saw that there were preventable harms. For example, I got to work on the Iowa caucuses and I discovered that no one was going to actually be able to see inside of just Iowa. They were going to be able to see what was happening across all of the United States when the caucuses was happening, but they wouldn't be able to see like targeted behavior that was going to Iowa. And considering that in the United States, who wins the Iowa caucuses has been a factor in many previous presidential elections in terms of choosing who gets to be the candidate. For example, Obama was running behind before Iowa and then did very, very well in Iowa and suddenly jumped to the forefront. That experience made me start asking questions. That opened a door where I began wondering, will I have to do something? Like, do I owe it to society to do something? Is this a thing that's necessary? And then the moment where I went from trying to contemplate what were my obligations or like, what were my duties? They got rid of civic integrity. So the team that I was on, there was a team inside of Facebook who had a sole mission. It was, how do you protect elections? How do you make sure that Facebook is a positive force in society at large? How do you prevent things like large-scale violence? The team that's job was to focus on that, to make sure it got done. It got dissolved. And that was the moment where I was like, well, Facebook cannot heal from the inside because I got an MBA at Harvard and I took a change management class. And they talked about the idea that if you want to get an organization to change, getting an individual person to change is so hard, but getting an organization to change is exponentially harder because you have inertia. You have to get everyone going in the same direction and everyone has their own reasons to not move. The only way you can do that is by having a vanguard. Having a group of people where you point at them and you say, you are the leaders, you are leading us to the future. Anyone gets in your way, we, the leadership of the company, the executives, we are always going to have your back. And we're going to say it proudly, loudly, everyone's going to know we're going that way. And Facebook did that for four years. After 2016, they formed that team. And almost four years to the day, they dissolved it right after the 2020 election. And so I could see that Facebook was not going to be able to heal from the inside. And so I had to figure out a way to help the public, help Facebook to heal. So what's changed other than the company's name since you went public and since you testified to Congress last year? Well, technically they are now a metaverse company. So it's not just their name. Their whole mission and focus has changed. But 
we all know that's not really what people show up for Facebook for. A number of big laws have passed. So usually legislation takes a very, very long time to play out. We like to think that if there's a big enough stone that gets thrown in the lake, that the ripples will cause change to happen. There was a piece of legislation called the Digital Services Act that they've been trying and trying and trying to get passed in Europe for about four or five years. And within six months of after I came out, they were able to get that passed. And many of the leadership of that bill said the reason they were able to get it over the finish line in the end was because of the information in my disclosures. That bill is important because globally, we have never had the right to ask questions of these big platforms and demand answers. And so one of the major things that's changed is for the first time, academics and NGOs are going to have the right, civil society groups are going to have the right to ask questions of these platforms and get answers. And the reason why this is so important is a huge part of what allows us to be safe in society is that these different specialists are going in there and paying attention to what's happening. And there had been activists for at least 10 years before I came forward who had been bringing up many of the issues that were in my disclosures. The difference, though, was that when they came forward, when they would do you know, hard work trying to collect examples of what was happening, Facebook, because they knew no one else could see what was actually happening on the platform, would just say, that's so sad, but you know, it's not representative. It's just anecdotal data. It's not what happens to most people on our platform. And the thing that changed with the information in my disclosures was we now knew for sure that Facebook had been studying these problems, that they knew these things were happening, that they knew that there were easy solutions and that they chose not to pick them because they would make less money. And so I think the fact that we now have that first stepping stone to reform, right now we can't discover things like airbags in cars. It's not like we could buy you know, a data center of Facebook and run it a different way. Like We couldn't build our own intuition before, and now we have that right. The other thing that's changed is Europe, at least, didn't have whistleblower laws prior to last December. And people who pushed that bill forward said that the information in my disclosures was so impactful that they realized that in the future, they're going to need whistleblowers even more. That more and more of our economy is run on opaque systems. An opaque system is something like an, an AI that we can't figure out why it runs that way. Something that runs in a data center that we can't actually go and see how it was built. We can't see the consequences of the choices that were made in that product. It's a chip that runs on our phone that we're never going to be able to see inside or like see how it works. We're going to need more and more for whistleblowers to come forward and let the public know that action is needed. Because the only people who are going to understand how these systems work are the people inside the companies. And so back last December, Europe passed their first whistleblower law. And I think that's actually the thing that I'm most proud of because I got whistleblower protections because I worked for a public company in the United States. But even in the United States, not all people have whistleblower protections. So if I can help extend that to more people, that means a lot to me. Yeah, that is great. And that leads me to my next question of what has changed in your life since mm. you've been whistle on Facebook? It's amazing how much less stressed I am now. So I know it sounds, you'd be like, you just came out to the public. How could that be less stressful? I think if you've ever known someone who had to hold a secret where someone else's happiness or safety rested on that secret, you know how hard that is. And for at least a year and a half, I carried a burden where I was like, I think people's lives are in danger because of choices that Facebook is making. And I had to just keep that secret. And I could see from my peers at Facebook how it would wear on people over time. I got a new passport right after I left Facebook. And in Puerto Rico, where I live, you have voter IDs. 
maybe six months later, I have my voter ID. Another six months, I have a new driver's license. And I laid the photos out next to each other. And it's like I aged backwards in time 10 years. It was like I was sleeping badly enough before I was stressed. And none of those things are true anymore. So in that way, it's good. It's still super surreal to me that people recognize me. I'm really lucky that on a day-to-day basis, no one recognizes me here where I live. If I was in San Francisco, that probably wouldn't be true. I went to a conference recently that was in the tech accountability space. And it still isn't normal to me to have someone do a double take, that kind of thing. Must be nice to be home then. <laughs> yeah. And, and I get to see the, you know, the blue ocean. So there's all these little, little benefits of being home. That always helps. I'd love you to give us just one example of how Facebook's policies can corrupt a behavior in a society. And could you describe mm-hmm. for me how Facebook activity sowed civil unrest in Myanmar? Sure, that's a great example. So people don't realize that Facebook doesn't support all languages equally in terms of the safety systems that they build to make their products what they would consider minimally safe in the United States. So in the United States, when I left, there were maybe 160 different systems for detecting different kinds of what Facebook would consider to be harmful content. So maybe that's calls for violence. Maybe that's racial epithets. Maybe it's misinformation. I personally do not advocate for the path forward is about content moderation. One of the core things about content moderation is the only way it works is if you actually invest the time and the energy to rebuild each system in each relevant language. Now, what happened inside of Facebook was they made a policy decision. They said, hey, there aren't enough people who speak Burmese, not enough people who live in Myanmar. For us to invest in having a team monitor what happens on our platform there. You know, we're going to go into that country. We're going to do a program where we subsidize your data usage if you use Facebook's apps. So it's not like we're passively making it available in your country. We're paying people to use the app effectively. But because this country is a cost center, it's not a profit center, we're not going to staff safety professionals that understand the local context, that speak the local language. And back in 2016, there was a large mass casualty event, so a genocide in more plain language, that was caused against an ethnic group called the Rohingya. And one of the things that seems so shocking about this is It has now been established by the UN, by Amnesty International, by the US State Department, that social media played a primary role in this conflict, that the junta that ruled Myanmar went in and spread messages saying that the Rohingya were dangerous, that they were like vermin, they quote, bred too fast, and that they were endangering all the good Buddhists in the country. They even enlisted Buddhist monks to spread posts like this, to write posts like this. And it led to neighbors killing neighbors. And so it's one of these things where Facebook made a really simple business decision. They said, the amount of money we get in from Myanmar, we don't get a lot. Myanmar is so minimally literate that half of all the messages sent on Facebook Messenger are voice clips. People are becoming literate to use Facebook. Instead of saying, oh, we have a slightly more vulnerable population. We can't expect people to have a high school education, to have the ability to understand an information operation or to be wary of it. And yet, because they didn't have anyone on their staff that spoke Burmese or the one person they did was buried way down in the depths of the organization and they didn't have ways to escalate danger, um, even though people were telling them while all this was going on 
that Facebook's business decisions, the, how the products were designed, how they were amplifying content, even though people were trying to tell them that something was going on, they had no way to break through. And it's one of these things where I think sensible people can have disagreements about what kind of content should be available on the internet. I think that's a totally open topic. I think most people could agree, though, that if you operate your business in a language, you owe minimal safety protections to that user because you are making some money off them. Thank you for explaining how that works. I've listened to some other interviews with you, and I'd love you to describe for us how being invited to a group can actually change and radicalize Mm. the feed without your knowledge. Ah, so most people, when they talk about what is Facebook, they describe a product that hasn't really been that way in a long time. So people will say, Facebook is about my family and my friends. When in reality, more and more of our news feeds each year are made up of content that is, quote, not connected to us. So what does not connected to us mean? When content is from a friend, you have a connection. You were their friend. Or if it's from a friend of friend, even, you're still connected, at least through that other friend. But when you have content where, for example, someone saw your name, maybe someone searched for another group that you were in. They were like, ah, this person is from Iowa. They're in a group about Iowa City, Iowa. Someone could find you because you are relevant to them in some way. Maybe they're running a political campaign. Maybe they are trying to do industrial espionage. Maybe they are part of a social movement. You never know. Foreign influence campaign. Someone can come in and find your name because of another group you're in and invite you to a new group. And for 30 days, Facebook was, and I'm guessing they still do. I don't know for sure, but at least when I left the company, if you got invited to a group for 30 days, that invite was treated like an ad. So even though you never accepted that group, just because you didn't see the invite or like you didn't engage with your invites, they added you to that group. And if you did anything to indicate that you would interact with content from that group, so you clicked like, you clicked on a link, you reshared something, you wrote a comment that said, this is misinformation. If you did any of those things, Facebook would go, oh, you like the content. We're going to add you to the group. And they didn't go to the trouble of making it obvious to you that this had taken place. And the reason why this matters is Facebook simultaneously also set policies that made it very easy for people who were motivated to exploit flaws like that to maximally get a benefit. So namely, if you were someone who was trying to invite as many people as possible to say your QAnon group, Facebook would, if you and I sat down and said, how many people a day should you be allowed to invite to a new group? You know, you or I might say 100, 200. Let's not spam people. You should invite people you know. Facebook's limits were based per group instead of per day. And they were set at the level of thousands. So if you had 10 groups, you could invite 20,000 people a day to your groups because you could do about 2,000 per group. And the consequences were really extreme. So when Stop the Steal started building in the United States in the run-up to January 6th, we saw that the top person who invited people to Stop the Steal groups invited on the order of like 200,000 people to Stop the Steal groups over the course of a few days. And that's because he just double dipped over and over again. Wow. That is alarming that it can have such an impact. Where do you see the solution? What's required to clean this platform up? That's such a good question. So I think one of the things to keep in mind is that these platforms in general don't have magic bullets that are going to make them into uh, positive social influences. It's not like we can get up there and say, we need different brakes on the car and we need collapsible steering columns and we need 
airbags, those three things, they'll fix everything, at least substantially make cars safer. It's not like that. Instead, we need to ask, why did these companies make these decisions over time? And the reason why they made these decisions was they were more profitable. They got allowed groups to grow faster. Groups were valuable because it gave you more content you could view, which meant you clicked on more ads because you spent more time on the platform. If we go in there and unwind a single decision, we're not necessarily going to have a system that's flexible enough for the next problem. And the thing about technology is it's always evolving. And so the place where I begin on all these conversations, remember this is a beginning, it's not an end, is around transparency, around the idea that the reason why we have relatively safe cars today, cars where we accept the level of risk that's there when we step into one, is because we were able to buy cars and crash them. We were able to buy cars and put sensors on them. We could understand what choices were being made. We could hold auto companies accountable. But when it comes to the social platforms, we don't have that today. And so we're working on a nonprofit and we're working on a project around duty of care. So in the Commonwealth legal system, there's this idea that there's a certain level of responsibility you have by nature of providing a product to make sure that the person who purchases it is okay. You can't overly cut corners in the sake of profit. When it comes to social media, we don't know how to talk about what our options are because most people aren't aware where the opportunities are for building safer, more enjoyable products that protect freedom of speech better, that protect our communities better. And so we're going through an exercise around trying to document in a collaborative way harms, say, hey, let's at least agree on what kinds of problems are happening, and then go through and start documenting what levers exist to prevent or mitigate harm. And what I mean by that is we often confuse a lever for reducing harm with a strategy for doing that approach. So for example, with kids, we often say, let's keep under 13-year-olds off these platforms. And because we don't have a common language or like a common set of colors to paint with, often children's rights groups will latch onto a few number of solutions that might have unintended effects. So for example, one thing that's often said is let's check IDs. The way we're going to keep kids safe is we're going to check everyone's ID. And the reality is these platforms have so much information on us. Kids leak so much information. They literally will say, I'm a fourth grader at Jones Elementary School. That we don't need to check IDs to still be able to use that strategy for keeping under 13 years off the platform. So we're building that out as a shared menu where we can start to have conversations around how do we keep these systems safe. So we need transparency and we need more common ground, common context, so that more parties can sit at the table and talk about how to move forward. So when did you know that this activism, this work was what you were here to do? Well, I hope I'm not doing this work forever because there are other things that I would like to do with my life. (laughs) But I think it's one of these things where I feel a level of responsibility because I was the one that kicked over the hornet's nest. One of the core reasons I came forward was because I saw that there were hundreds of people in the world, maybe three or 400 people who really understood how these products worked, right? That unlike Tesla, where their most important machine learning people, their most important mechanical engineers, Those people were trained in universities. They didn't start out and train that person from scratch. When it comes to designing these safety solutions, to understanding how these recommender systems 
choose the content that you consume every day. Almost every person in the world today who is an expert at this learned inside one of those companies. And so I always like to say my core goal is to not be needed in this work anymore. I got very sick when I was in my late 20s. And I really deeply appreciate the idea that we don't know how much time we have on this earth. And so I feel a certain pressure to make sure that I am not the solution. Anything where a single person is the solution, one, it's no more democratic than how we got into this mess. But two, you're basically choosing to fail. And so as soon as I feel like I'm not needed, I guarantee you, I have a beach outside my window. I have a vision. I have a thing I'm yearning for. That's oh, great. You have maintained an extraordinarily dignified, calm, restorative language around this. You're not angry. Mm. And I'm interested in that reaching across the aisle Ooh. as an approach. Yeah. yeah tell me about that. Um, so I am a Quaker. So Quakers are a vein of Protestant Christianity. And Quakers really believe in peace. So the idea that one of our core objectives being on this earth is to help reconcile people together. That I like to talk about the idea of there's a metaphor for hell, which is that it's like isolation and estrangement. It's like being alone. We associate it with cold. We associate it with sadness, right? And God is oneness and connection. And I think one of the things that's been really disruptive about social media is that we have begun to cling to social media during a time period where at least in the United States, we have invested less and less and less in shared spaces. So people don't go to church. People don't go to bowling leagues. People don't have fraternal orders, Elks Lodges, where like they make friends. Closest thing we have is Starbucks in terms of like universal interconnective tissue other than like our workplaces. And we've turned to social media because it was convenient. And I look at what Facebook and some of the other social platforms have done in terms of trying to not have to take accountability for certain choices they made in that new public space. And the strategy that they've used is division. The strategy that they've used is telling us you know, there's no way to be safe except to censor people, which is false. The reason why there's 22,000 pages in the disclosures is because I wanted people to see clearly we had lots and lots of options that were not censoring people. And the reason they chose that was they knew that we would never agree on what can and cannot be said, that we value freedom of speech too much. And so I look at all the effort that they've put into this thing. And I really believe that the way that we can counter a monolith message about division is by building for connection, that we don't change people's minds by talking about our own favorite things. We change people's minds by talking about what they care about and valuing and investing what they take and leading them on a pathway to collaboration. And so I view it all as under just the work of pacifism. Pacifism is not passive. It's very, very active. It's about the idea that you give up the right to use violence if you were in that situation. So that just to force yourself to work harder like every single day before that day, because you know you've already given up that option. And so I don't think the world changes with anger. I think change is so slow that the only way you get there is by finding something positive to keep you going. Anger burns you out. And so I want to still be on this journey in 10 years because I think it'll take that long. I love that. As a woman in tech, Silicon Valley has been famous for its bro culture. I'm interested in the challenges and opportunities that you've found mm. as a young woman in tech. Can you tell me what's changed, what's stayed the same and where you see it being a force for good? You know, it's so interesting. So I'm 38 years old, which is very old for a woman in tech because we have faster drop-off rates 
for a variety of reasons. When I joined Google, I was the first woman hired into my role in 14 months. So the previous woman who had been hired in, she shouldn't have been in our class, but she was like a non-traditional hire. And so there weren't a lot of us. They hired 30 men or something in that time period. And when I look at how things are today, they're substantially better than that. I know that even the program I was in at Google, within a couple of years after that, where six out of 30 people were women, which sounds like it's not a lot, but going from one, two to like six is a big deal. Part of why I'm an anomaly in terms of I'm an algorithmic product manager, like there's very few algorithmic product managers out there, is because I got pushed onto a project that I think part of why I got pushed there was because I was not considered very good at my job. I went in, I was a, an electrical engineer, not a computer scientist by training. I just had a lot of hustle and like I got enough of the questions right kind of thing. And I got put on Google Books, which was not sexy. Search team never took it seriously. And because it was not considered a very premium post, my engineering director could not get an associate product manager, which was my job, to do search quality on books. He had tried and tried and tried. And the search team was like, we don't care. And because he couldn't get anyone, he trained me. And so it's one of these things where sometimes discrimination can end up pushing you into opportunities that you might not have considered otherwise. I got really into data very early in the era of data science. The first time the words data scientist were published was in 2007. And I started working on search quality in 2007. I started doing this job. And because I couldn't get people to take me seriously, I got really into data. Because if I made a graph, they would talk to my graph. They might not have engaged with my ideas, but if I showed them a graph where I was like, this is why I think this, they'd be like, oh, what an interesting graph. This graph makes a lot of sense. I wasn't buying it, but then you got a graph for me. And so back then, it's shocking how much better the tools are now than they were then. Because it's been 15 years since then. And 15 years ago, it would take 20 minutes to search over a single day of search logs. Really basic stuff. And at Facebook, I could do various calculations over three months of data in like 20 minutes. It was just totally different. And the thing that kept me going, even though our tooling was so bad, was being able to make a graph and suddenly win an argument. I would not have gotten as far in my career as I had if I hadn't gotten a chance to do all that data science so early. And I don't think I would have gotten a chance to do all that data science if I hadn't been on the fringes at Google. So you win some, you lose some. Oh, that's terrific. Thank you. Yeah. You said we can have the social media that brings out the best in humanity. I'd love to hear how we do that. What do you see as a social media platform that can bring out the best in humanity? You know, it's interesting. I spend so much time right now thinking, how do we blunt the edges that I think I will do a bad job at that answer? I think there's a lot of things where we take for granted certain things about social media today. We take for granted the idea that we're going to stay up late doom scrolling and feel bad about it. We take for granted the idea that some number of kids are going to die. There are these things where we haven't reached the stage yet where we're like, it's really unacceptable that these things are going on. And the kinds of things where I really believe there's an opportunity to greatly blunt the edges. Right now, the kind of things that companies do to show that they care about these issues are things like when you set a go-to-bed reminder. So they'll do a little thing and at 10 o'clock, the little thing will pop up and say, do you want to go to bed? And I don't know about you. But at least for me, when I see that I hit snooze because I was busy dissociating, I was doom scrolling, I wasn't done yet. That design intervention is not designing 
with an intent to respect my autonomy and my dignity. So yeah, it's giving me a chance to say, like, I'm going to put up a little speed bump, a little nudge. But if we were really serious about this, if we took the same level of seriousness that we did about increasing consumption, we would do things like we have known at least since 2000, 20 plus years, that if you make a product a teeny bit slower online, people will use it substantially less. Make it 100 milliseconds slower, you'll get 20% less usage, huge drop-offs. So let's imagine instead of just popping up that little speed bump and saying, do you want to go to bed? We asked you at noon when you still had willpower, when do you want to go to bed tonight? And for two hours before that, Instagram got a little bit slower and a little bit slower and a little bit slower. So gracefully that you didn't even notice it was getting slower. It's getting a teeny bit slower every five minutes. Around your bedtime, you would just get tired of using Instagram and you would go to bed. We know how to do this. We've known how to do this for years. And the crazy thing is, it's not like Facebook doesn't know how to do this. If you were someone stealing content from Instagram today, they wouldn't take your account down. If you're downloading thousands or tens of thousands of posts a day, they wouldn't take your account down. They would just slow your account down. And so these are the kinds of features where we can be designing for our weaknesses in addition to our strengths, but we choose not to. Facebook could turn that code on. It's live today. They could turn it on to help kids go to bed on time, but they don't because these products make a lot more money when people stay up doom scrolling. Yeah, wow. And what role do government regulations have in some of this in creating a healthier system? Totally. I talked about before about this idea that we're going to start doing this collaborative open source harms and solutions mapping process. Part of the reason why we want to do this is we think part of the reason why people don't go out and organize, put pressure on their representatives to ask them to do more things like this is that people aren't aware that they could ask. In the United States, back in the 60s, there was this book called Unsafe at Any Speed. Ralph Nader came along and said, did you know there could be way less deaths from cars than we have today? There's a whole bunch of known interventions. They cost very small amounts of money and they don't do them because they're worried it'll scare you away from buying a car. If they talk about safety, you'll be like, oh, is this car unsafe? No one else talks about safety. And after that book came out, the change was dramatic. Within a year, we had the Department of Transportation for the first time in the United States. Within two years, we had the first laws mandating seatbelts, even though we had seatbelts in cars for 25 years. They'd never been required. I think what needs to happen is we need to make it easy for people to learn about what they could be asking for. I will know that I'm making a difference when I start seeing online influencers on YouTube explaining different ways you could fix social media. That's my aspiration, is it'll be this whole YouTube subculture of people who go and read through the materials that we produce and that use the tools we do and have these public forum conversations around how should we be designing social media? Because right now, we're not asking our legislators to make these things possible. Because without intervention, the economics of these businesses are going to block us from getting social media that we feel good about. Because if they trap you doom scrolling, you stay up later, you look at more ads, you're more depressed the next day. So you come back and doom scroll again. Unless we step in and either through litigation or through ESG or through regulation, unless we step in, we're not going to change the incentives enough such that we could get social media that we feel good about. Yeah, that's a great answer. What sort of engagement do you have with social media these days? Um, actually, that's a great question to ask today. So today is the one-year anniversary of my coming out. 
And I learned three hours ago that I was bad and I never posted on social media about it. And there were a bunch of people who wanted to repost it. So tomorrow at an appropriate social media hour, I will post a thing saying, I forgot to post about my one year anniversary yesterday. That is my social media relationship. I really like it. I think it's a positive thing. I love it when people send me Twitter threads. But I really like to cook and I really like to hang out with people in person. And so I just do not spend a lot of time on social media. That sounds healthy. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, neither do I. What comes next for you? Where's your focus yeah. into the future? So the primary thing I'm focusing on for the next year is this work around duty of care. So we announced our first seed funding for the project last week. We got a seed grant that's going to let us run through the whole process on a few harm areas. We want to be working with universities to help bring more students, more researchers, more academics, more civil society groups to the table. The whole goal around this project is for holding a distributed truth and reconciliation commission on social media and then asking the question, how do we move forward from there? I think one of the things that's been really missing is we haven't been thinking about how do we help grow the pool of people who could really in an informed way talk about what our options are with social media. How do we grow that pool from a thousand people to a hundred thousand people or from a thousand people to a million people? One way to think about it is when we've had previously powerful industries, industries that were similar level of powerful in our societies, that had a similar level of influence. We had situations like that. We had lots of people around the world who had some intuition around these things and could weigh in. If you have driven in a car before, you have a sense of, did the car skid when I go around the turn? How did it handle when the road was wet? What happened when I had a fender bender? A lot of people had intuitions around what was a good or bad car experience. And I am super, super excited to help form that shared context and then make more and more people aware that they could be sitting at the table too. Terrific. Thank you. Now, my last question for you, Francis, today is what's your vision for the world? What do you want to see? Oh, what do I want to see? I think we're living in a really interesting time in that I had occasionally heard this phrase, but not frequently, before I testified in Europe last year, which was I was in the French parliament. And the member of the parliament, or I guess it's called the assembly, he asked me some question around digital colonialism. So the idea of digital colonialism is when we used to have economies that are driven by physical products, the colonial power would go into the smaller state and would extract physical resources. We're now living in a world where we can build technological systems and have them extract resources from the places where they operate. But where the people who are involved or the people who pay the costs don't get to weigh in on how those systems are run. And I think my dream for the world is those kinds of phenomena are only going to get more severe. The reality of having more and more of our economy run by these opaque systems means even people in the United States are going to start experiencing some of this digital colonial vibe. I really look forward to a world where we have figured out how to have technology live in democracy's house. What is the role of public feedback, of public involvement in large, meaningful decisions that impact society? And I'm really excited that this is a thing that we're figuring out now. Every previous communication technology was disruptive, and they're disruptive for really similar reasons. They connected more people more seamlessly, faster, cheaper, all those things, things that we usually associate with social media. 
but they also changed the dynamics in the societies where they operated. And so we're going to go through a period of teething over the next three to 10 years. It might get a lot worse than it even is today before it gets better. But I really look forward to a world where the people who pay for the consequences of technology also get to chime in and have some influence over those processes as well. I love that answer. Francis Haugen, thank you so much for your time with Jumbo Feather. I'm very grateful. Thank you for inviting me. Have a great day. You too. That was Frances Haugen. If you want to know more about her plans for social media that's good for humanity, head to FrancisHaugen.com. See you next time on the Dumbo Feather Podcast. Thanks for listening. Impact Investments and Philanthropy for a world that nurtures all beings. Be the Earth Foundation. Visit BeTheEarth.Foundation and subscribe to their newsletter.